If you're new here, we're in the fourth week of a series called The Story of the Missing uh, Son. And it comes from Luke chapter 15. And if you have a Bible, uh, an old school copy or a digital copy, whatever you have, turn with me to Luke chapter 15. And just for those of you who haven't been with us, I want to review a little bit uh, where we're at in this. We've been focusing on the last of three stories that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 15. And in each of these stories, he tells about something or someone that was lost and then that was found. Uh, This particular story in uh, the last part of Luke chapter 15 talks about two lost sons and a father who loves them dearly. Each of the sons represents one of the two paths that people generally take in life to find happiness and meaningful and fulfillment in life. The younger son takes the path, we've been calling it, there's nothing inspired about it, but we've just been calling this the the path of expressive individualism. Uh, He rejects traditional values, rejects his family's values, uh, goes off to the city, wants to find himself, and he wants to determine what's right and wrong for himself. Uh, He leaves home, leaves his father, and goes off into the distant country, and uh, things don't go well for him. And he eventually squanders a third of the family fortune, and he's broke, and he can't find a job, and he returns to his father. And then the father does something that no father in this culture would have been expected to do. Uh, He embraces his son. He runs. He sees his son. He lavishes his son with with hugs and kisses, and he, and he restores him immediately to the family. He's so excited to see his son return. The older son in the story is, we've been calling him uh, a moralist. Uh, he's a rules follower. And he's the kind of guy, you know, he, he just he follows all the rules, stays close to home, takes care of dad, works for dad, and all of that. He believes he's, he's a very good person. He's the kind of person that could not possibly believe he's lost because he is such a good rules follower. And he is furious with his dad for restoring the younger son to the family. I mean, he is really angry about this. Now, what Jesus is teaching in this parable is that both philosophies of life are flawed. Neither of them, neither the expressive individualist or the moralist, represents the gospel. But surprisingly, what he says is that the moralist is the one who's the most lost of the two. Because the moralist couldn't possibly believe that in his goodness that he could be lost. Now, I've been telling you So that's kind of a review of where we've been. I've been telling you that there's a twist in this series. And the title of our story, uh, the title of our series kind of alludes to it, the story of the missing son. I've been telling you there's a twist. Today I want to tell you the twist, okay? Now, before I unveil that twist, uh, you're going to have to do a little spade work with me here, okay? So what I want to do is I want to start, we're going to have to, we're going to look at a few passages of Scripture today, okay? So kind of keep your fingers uh, nimble. And I want to go back and I want to understand a little more of the context of Luke chapter 15. Because here's the thing. Uh, Context determines meaning. Uh, In fact, I'd like for you to say that with me. Context determines meaning. Say it one more time. Context determines meaning. You can't just take a passage of Scripture and rip it out of the Bible and understand really what it means. You've got to understand the context around it. Context always determines meaning. By the way, that's not just true in the Bible. That's true in all communication, in any book you read, in any uh, conversation that you have with someone. Context always determines meaning. And that is certainly true here uh, in this passage as well. I want you to go back with me to Luke chapter 15. I want you to go back to verse 1. Luke chapter 15, verse 1. 
And we're, gonna, we're just going to kind of review here, uh, for those of you who've been with us, uh, and then we're going to look at a couple of the other stories that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 15. Verse 1, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered. So there's two groups of people hanging around while Jesus is telling this story, just as there are two lost sons in this story, right? Okay. The younger son represents the tax collectors and the sinners, and the older son represents the uh, Pharisees and the teachers of the law. They mutter, this, man's, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And then Jesus told them this parable. And actually, um, all of Luke chapter 15, even though there are three different stories, they all represent one parable that Jesus is telling. All right, now let's look at, let's look at this. And for those of you who have been with us or maybe you've been following along on our podcast, I want you to see, see if you can identify the difference between the two stories that we read and the one that we've been looking at in Luke chapter 15, at the end of Luke 15, okay? So see if you can see the difference between these first two stories and the last story that we've been looking at. All right, here we go. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and he says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. And then he says in verse 7, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons uh, who do not need to repent. Now, I don't have time to go into great detail about that, but you get the idea. You are a shepherd in that story, a very common vocation in that day and age. And uh, one of your sheep runs away, and you go after that sheep. I mean, you go in search of it. You find it, and then when you find it, you rejoice. All right, let's look at the second uh, story. Verse 8. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins, and she loses one of them. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So you got the same storyline there. You lose a valuable coin. And, you know, because it's so valuable, you do everything you can. You go in search of it in the house, and you, you, uh, you know, you, you just move all the furniture, do everything you can to find that coin. And once you find that coin, oh, man, you're so relieved, and you rejoice, and you celebrate over the, that fact. Okay. If you've been with us throughout this series, or you've been maybe following along, can you see the difference between those first two stories and the last one? There is something that is shockingly different about the third story. From the first two. And here's what's similar. All three, something or someone's lost, something or someone is found, and at the end there's a celebration, right? In all three of them. But in the third story, there is something very different. And here's what it is. In the first two, someone goes in search of what was lost. But in the third story, here's what's different. No one goes in search of the lost younger brother. Did you notice that? First two stories, someone goes in search. And in the last story, no one goes in search. You remember how that went? Younger son goes off to a distant country. I said it earlier. He squanders a third of the family fortune, goes broke, returns. But he does the returning. No one goes in search of him. He does the returning. 
Now, I realize that that probably isn't as conspicuous to us as it would have been to Jesus' audience, especially, uh, you know, he's telling the story. It says he's telling the story to tax collectors and sinners, but he's also telling the story to religious leaders and teachers of the law. These were people who knew their Bible very well, and Jesus knew that. And he knew that as he told this story, that they would have been reminded of another story way back in the beginning of the Bible about two sons. Do, do me a favor. If you have a Bible, just hold your finger here at Luke 15 because we're going to come back. But I'd like for you to just flip back, if you would, to Genesis uh, chapter 4. We'll come back to Luke 15. But if you would, just flip back to Genesis chapter 4. And I want you to look with me at verses 1 and 2 of Genesis chapter 4. Man, my Bible is so, uh, my pages are so torn up here. Let me see if I can f- just flip back here to Genesis chapter 4. Here we go, verse 1. All right. Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Okay, just stop. What do we got here? We have two brothers. One is older. His name is Cain. And the other is younger. His name is Abel. Now, Abel kept flocks. And Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. Excuse me. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door, desires to have you, but you must master it. Verse 8, now Cain said to his brother Abel, so the older says to the younger, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? And, of course, the implied answer to the question is, of course, you are your brother's keeper. That's why God asked the question. The older brother did indeed need to watch out for the younger brother. Now, go back to Luke chapter 15. Guess who should have gone out in search of the younger brother but didn't? It was the older brother's responsibility to go in search of the younger brother. But the older brother never does that in this story. In fact, when the younger brother comes home and there's a celebration, the older son gets furious about it. He ruins the reunion. He ruins the restoration in relationship between the father and the younger brother. Uh, He refuses to go into the party. He stands outside and he shouts at his dad. He's so angry at his father. And then the father says something fascinating to him. Look at verse 31, Luke chapter 15, verse 31. We're back in Luke 15 now, verse 31. My son, the father said, you are always with me. And then he says, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Here's what he says. Everything I have is yours. And that was quite literally true, wasn't it? 
Because if you've been with us, you know, how I've taught, you know what I've said about how the family inheritance worked. Younger son got a third of the family inheritance. Older son got two-thirds of the family inheritance. And so in a very real sense, in a, in, in a literal sense, every penny of the family's money <clears throat> and the family's fortune that is left over belonged to the older brother. Because the younger brother had already received his, right? He took it off. He went off and he squandered a third of that. But the older brother, everything that is left is his. Every robe, every ring, every fattened calf, all of it's coming out of the older son's inheritance, which is really what infuriates the older brother in this. Literally, the younger son's restoration to the family has come at the older brother's expense. You could say it this way. The older brother had to pay for the younger brother's rebellion. And that, tell me, tell me if you think I'm right on this, that doesn't seem fair. I mean, that just so doesn't seem fair. That the older brother, who's, he's obeyed all the rules, man. He's kept the rules. He, he's, he's done all the things that are right for the family. He's kept the rules. He has to pay for the younger brother's stupidity and rebellion. That does not seem fair, does it? Guys, do me a favor, if you would. Look on either side of the room. You could, there's four banners on either side of the room. And they have, uh, they have four words or phrases. These words and phrases represent our, our strategy as a church for discipleship or for spiritual growth, how we want to help people grow spiritually. And those you know, four words, uh, the first one says believe. The second one says experience community. The last one says change the city. The third one is the one I really want you to notice right now. It's, it, it, says, it says the word unlearn. And the reason we said unlearn, what we mean by unlearn is that when a person comes to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, they suddenly realize that most of what Jesus teaches is counterintuitive. I mean, like, it's not what you would think. Most of us, for instance, have been taught that, well, I mean, Luke 15 is a perfect example of this, because most of us have been taught that the highest ideal, especially those of us who are moralists, Rules keepers. Older brother types. We've been taught that the highest ideal for how you treat other people is that you treat them fairly. I mean, you treat them fairly. You, know, you do what's right for other people. They do what's right for you. You treat them fairly. I mean, that's the highest ideal. Treat them fairly. Everybody treats each other fairly. You do for me, I do for you. We treat each other fairly. That's the highest ideal that most of us have been taught. And that sounds incredibly noble. That sounds like a beautiful way to treat other people. Look, I, 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 as a businessman, I'm going to treat you fairly. Man, that sounds like a, such a noble idea. As long as the people that you are treating fairly do right by you. And then when they don't do right by you, fair doesn't seem like such a noble, beautiful concept, does it? In fact, here's the thing. Fair, when we treat each other fairly all the time, fair can become downright ugly. Because what fair always, it, what it denigrates down into is tit for tat, eye for eye, get even, revenge. And actually, with fair, we can sink pretty low into the mud and the muck of life, can't we? You hurt me, I'm going to hurt you. You damage my reputation, I'm going to damage your reputation. 
mean, we can sink pretty low in the whole fair thing, can't we? And you see, this is where the gospel is counterintuitive. The gospel says that the only hope for humanity isn't... The only hope for humanity, the only hope for your relationships, the only hope for your friendships, the only hope for your marriage, the only hope for your relationship with your kids, the only hope for all of your work relationships. The gospel says the only hope for humanity is found not in fair, but in another F word, forgiveness. And the reason is, if broken people keep playing fair with one another, the world just, like it just goes into this downward spiral. And life become, becomes hopeless, and every relationship ends badly because all of us are broken people, and all of us hurt one another. And if all we do is just play tit for tat and keep, you know, you know revenge and eye for an eye and all of that, what we end up doing is that we just keep destroying. Inevitably, we keep destroying one another. And we just go down into this horrible downward spiral of broken relationships. We just... That's the way it goes. And the gospel says the only hope for your relationships and the only hope for humanity lies in someone forgiving someone else. But the problem with forgiveness is that it's not fair. And those of us who are moralists, we just cannot get behind this concept of forgiveness. Because here's the thing. In forgiveness, someone always has to pay for a wrong that has been done. And that's just a principle of life you can't get away from. Someone always has to pay for a wrong that's been done. Here's the thing. In forgiveness, it's the person who was wronged that ends up paying the price. Because what you have to do when you forgive, what you have to do is that you have to absorb the cost. You absorb what the other person did and you don't retaliate. That's forgiveness. And that's the gospel. And that's counterintuitive, which is why most of us in the room, especially those of us moralists, we agree with the older brother's anger in this story, don't we? Come on, nod your heads. You know, you agree with the older brother's anger. You're like, I totally agree. It is not fair that he has to pay for the younger son's sin. And if it were us, we would not pay for the younger son's sin, would we? Would we? No. We, no, we wouldn't do that. In fact, if it were us, the younger son would have to pay for his own rebellion and his own stupidity, right? Even if the cost, even if the cost is a broken family, even if the cost is a lost son, even if the cost is a father's broken heart, We would rather that be the cost than pay for it ourselves because it's only fair. He broke the rules. Which is where moralism always ends in a cold, loveless, religious exactness that is more concerned about who is right and who is wrong than about something like forgiveness or redemption or restoration, which is exactly what the religious leaders in this story in Luke 15 to whom Jesus is teaching, it's exactly the kind of religion they practiced. But in telling this story, in the way that Jesus tells this story, and I'm just here's a hint. This isn't the, this isn't the twist yet. I mean, this is a hint at the twist to see if you can begin to figure it out. Jesus creates in us in this story 
a yearning for a true older brother, doesn't he? The kind of older brother whose love for the younger brother and whose love for the father far exceeds the price that he would have to pay for their restoration. He creates in us a longing for an older brother who would go in search of his younger brother and who would travel not just off to a distant country, but he would even go from heaven to earth if he had to to rescue and restore his younger brother. creates in us a a longing for a kind of older brother who would pay not just mere money for for his younger brother's restoration, but he would even be willing to pay with his own life if that was necessary. He creates in us a, a longing for an older brother who would be willing to be stripped of his robe so that we could be clothed in his righteousness. Wouldn't that be a more hopeful story than the one that's here in front of us in Luke 15? Where you've got an older brother who's just standing outside a party, furious, unwilling to go in, angry, mad, exacting, cold, rigid, legalistic. It creates in us a longing for a true older brother. Okay, here's another verse. I'm just going to put this one up on the screen. You don't have to turn. Maybe you want to write this down somewhere. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. I want you to to just pay real close attention to this. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that his son might be the what? Firstborn. What does that make him? It makes him an older brother. That he might be the firstborn among many brothers, it says. Here's the twist to the story. Jesus is the older brother that humanity needs. That's the twist to the story. That's why we've been calling this the story of the missing son. Because Jesus is missing in this story. Without Jesus, all that we're left with in this story or in the story of humanity is broken relationships. That's it. But with Jesus, there's, there's hope. Because in an act of selfless love, Jesus paid for all the wrong of humanity so that all sins could be forgiven. He paid for the wrongs of the younger brothers and he paid for the wrongs of the older brothers too. Jesus is the oldest son that we've been longing for. And the way Jesus tells this story, he creates in us a yearning for that older brother. He's the true older brother. Jesus is. Again, if you just look over here at these banners, first word that we have up there is believe. Last one is uh, change the city. Changing the city of Evansville, changing any other city for that matter, begins with belief in Jesus Christ, who is the hope of the world. Evansville needs more Jesus and less moralism. Evansville needs more gospel 
and less self-righteousness. Every city does. If you haven't believed in Jesus, believe today. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. I don't get, if you're a younger son and you've rejected everything that you know, maybe you, were, you grew up with, and you rejected all the traditional values of your family, you stopped believing in the Bible, you went off and you, know, you kind of did your own thing and it didn't work out for you, let me tell you something. Jesus loves you. He paid for your sins. If you're a moralist here today, if you're an older brother type, and I mean you find yourself, you're a rules keeper all the time, and you think, I couldn't possibly be lost because I'm so good, believe today that Jesus Christ died on the cross because you're a sinner. You needed Jesus. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Believe. That's where it starts. If you haven't believed in Jesus, believe today. If you have believed in Jesus, if you have come to a point in your life at some point, maybe it was 30 years ago, maybe it was 10 years ago, maybe it was yesterday, if you have believed in Jesus, believe too that the life of Jesus, the very power that Jesus lived with, that that life has been planted on the, it's been installed on the hard drive of your soul so that the same selfless love that Jesus demonstrated to humanity can be displayed in Evansville through you. And you need to know that that's what Evansville needs. It needs Jesus lived out through you. That's what the city of Evansville needs. You need to believe that, that it is possible for you to live the life that Jesus lived. To love the love that Jesus loved with. Believe that. Someone in our church, um, they told me a story. Uh, they told me about this foreign film that they said I had to see. And uh, so I, I rented, in fact, I rented it this past week. And uh, it, it was, the film was called Three Seasons. I don't know if any of you guys have seen this film. It's called Three Seasons. And it's about life in post-war Vietnam. And the character, one of the main characters in this story is a bicycle rickshaw driver. His name is Hai. And Hai falls in love with a beautiful prostitute whose name is Lan. And he cannot afford Lan. I mean, he couldn't begin to afford her. Lan lives in deep poverty. She longs for something far more. She longs to live in the elegance of the hotels in which she turns tricks. But she can't ever spend the night in those hotels. She just turns tricks there. And she longs for that life. She longs to to be able to to live in the elegance of those places. And she hopes that her prostitution will get her out of poverty. But instead, all that her prostitution does is it brutalizes her and it enslaves her. Well, High is so deeply in love with Lan, but he doesn't have the money that he could possibly afford her. So he enters a bicycle race and he wins. And with his winnings, what he does is he, 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 he brings Lan to the most elegant hotel in the city. And he pays for the room, and he pays her fee too. But there's a twist to this story, and it's counterintuitive as well. Because he doesn't want to have sex with her. The only thing he wants is to watch her fall asleep in this world that she's always longed to live in. That's all he wanted. And she can't, and she doesn't believe that a love like that exists at first, but once she realizes that his love for her 
is real, she falls asleep. And eventually she's transformed by his love, making it impossible for her to return to a life of prostitution once she's experienced that kind of love. Jesus Jesus teaches in Luke chapter 15 that expressive individualism, it's not the... It's not the answer to the deepest longings of humanity, but neither is moralism. A cold, dutiful, angry religion um, is not what humanity longs for. The gospel of Jesus is what everyone longs for. The gospel changes people. Believe that. Believe the gospel and change the city of Evansville along the way. Would you bow your heads with me?